Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for coming out. I'm Brad Wilson with the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions here at Princeton. Uh, this is the second lecture in an annual series uh, that we have. Uh, the series goes by the title of the Alpheus T. Mason uh, lec uh, Lectures in Constitutional Law and Political Thought, the Quest for Freedom. Uh, of course, uh, Professor Mason uh, was a distinguished scholar and uh, held the McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence here at Princeton for many years, and this series is in his honor. Before I uh, introduce our speaker for today, I would simply like to uh, uh, bring to your attention uh, a couple of upcoming events. Uh, next week, uh, uh, we have a conference on Wednesday and Thursday, not here, as most of our events are, but instead in Whig Hall over Cross Washington Road. Uh, on the Renaissance of Jewish Philosophy in America. It will begin on Wednesday evening with uh, a panel and then will uh, continue all day on Thursday, ending late afternoon uh, with a wrap-up by uh, Bill Galston, uh, William Galston at the University of Maryland. Hope you can come out for that. And then uh, on, on February 27th, we have uh, the, uh, 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 another lecture in the Alpheus T. Mason lecture series by Robert Lowry Clinton at the Southern Illinois University at Carbondale. He'll be speaking on John Marshall and the myth of Marbury versus Madison. Uh, and uh, he will be speaking in this room uh, at this time of day. Well, uh, let me now move on to introduce our speaker for today. Uh, we're very pleased to have Michael Paulson with us. Uh, professor Paulson is the McKnight Presidential Professor of Law and Public Policy uh, at the University of Minnesota. And he also is the Briggs and Morgan Professor of Law there and Associate Dean for Research and Scholarship. He teaches and writes in the areas of civil procedure, criminal procedure, legal ethics, constitutional law, and law and religion. Uh, he uh, received his bachelor's degree uh, from Northwestern and uh, an MA in religion from Yale Divinity School uh, and a JD from Yale Law School in 1985. He was an editor at the Yale Law Journal, or of the Yale Law Journal. He won the Harlan Fisk Stone Prize for Appellate Advocacy and directed the Yale Federalist Society. Uh, after graduating from Yale Law School, Professor Paulson joined the uh, U.S. Department of Justice in the Criminal Division Honors Program. Uh, he uh, later returned to the Department of Justice as an attorney advisor in the Office of Legal Counsel. Uh, so uh, today, uh, Professor Paulson will be speaking on uh, something uh, having to do with the past and the present, uh, the Emancipation Proclamation and the Commander-in-Chief Power Lessons from the Lincoln Administration for the War on Terror. Please join me in welcoming Professor Paulson. Thank you. 
Well, thank you, Brad, for that uh, wonderful introduction. It truly is great to be here at uh, Princeton. When I left Minneapolis this morning, it was three degrees. And boy, it's, it's, uh, I was just amazed when I got off the plane in Philadelphia. And then, uh, you know, I've never been to Princeton University before. I've been to Yale. And so I assumed it would look a little bit like New Haven. But Princeton is, is a really, really nice place for New Jersey. <laughs> Um, and it is an honor to be here. I have, I have many friends at, uh, at Princeton University, Don Drakeman, uh, Robert George. Um, uh, one of my history heroes uh, is here, James McPherson, uh, author of Battle Cry of Freedom, Professor McPherson, uh, probably the leading uh, historian of the Civil War era of all time. Uh, his, his battle cry of freedom uh, sat by my bedside, I think from 1988 to 1990, as I plowed through all seven or 800 pages just for my own interest, you know, a few pages a night. And I was a little bit embarrassed when I lent it to my then 12-year-old son about a year or two ago, and he whipped through it in a week. <clears throat> now we pass it back and forth, and the binding has broken, and, and he reads all the war and battle areas, and I read all the politics and law and Lincoln stuff. Um, <clears throat> a number of years ago, I started teaching uh, with another professor of mine, uh, a friend of mine at Minnesota, a seminar in the, in the nature of being just for fun at the University of Minnesota Law School called Lincoln and the Constitution. And we did it in part because... Well, it, it was a welcome break for us and for the students from things like civil procedure, evidence, corporate law, corporate transactions, securities, regulation, and all that nonsense. As you might know, maybe some of you are this way, uh, law school is just populated with a bunch of history and political science refugees who really would much rather be studying history, except that they, they kind of want to earn a living sometime when they graduate. And so our course was sort of geared at the frustrated history majors and give them a little bit of relief, but combine it also with what we thought were some fascinating constitutional issues from the Lincoln era. Okay, you know, they're just enormous constitutional law issues. In fact, it's sort of evidence that there's really nothing new under the sun. Um, and I think you could actually teach the law school <clears throat> constitutional law course and probably teach it more effectively by looking at constitutional issues from 1820 to 1880. And it's untainted by a lot of the things that, uh, the, sort of the politics that dominates constitutional law today. Um, <clears throat> when we started teaching this in the 1990s, I had no idea how salient and relevant many of these issues would actually become to sort of contemporary issues. So this year I'm teaching two classes total all year. I have a pretty light load. Um, <clears throat> one is Lincoln and the Constitution Seminar, and the other is a course that I began teaching about four years ago called War, National Security, and the Constitution. Uh, this was a course, you know, I, I'm sort of a constitutional law generalist and a dabbler in many of these areas. And <clears throat> after September 11th, it's sort of frustrating, you know, what's a middle-aged law professor to do after the attacks? And there's a, a strong sense of wanting to do something. And I approached our dean, and we immediately launched in the middle of the semester. We, you know, was, uh, we started the course in October, a new uh, one-credit course on war, national security, and the Constitution. Uh, 
the law in times of crisis. And I was able to build a little bit on some of my Lincoln knowledge and some of my general constitutional law knowledge. Uh, but it was a sense that this was something I wanted to become much more involved in, thinking that these would become many of the constitutional law issues that would dominate our nation's attention, possibly for the rest of my uh, professional career, possibly, perhaps even probably, for the rest of our lives. So this lecture today combines two of my academic interests, the Lincoln interest and the passion for and concern about issues of war, peace, national security, and governmental power to act in times of crisis. And thus the title, <clears throat> The Emancipation Proclamation, and the Commander-in-Chief Power, Lessons from the Lincoln Administration, a little bit of the history, for the War on Terror, a little bit of uh, uh, today. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to start by just talking a little bit about why I think it really is important for constitutional law thinking today to study the Civil War era and Lincoln as a constitutional interpreter. It's kind of an occupational hazard of law professors, especially, to teach Supreme Court cases, to teach cases as if the only law out there, that the only constitutional interpreters are judges. And I think that is an occupational hazard, and it leads to, leads to sort of a skewed legal education in constitutional law. I tend to think that the great issues of constitutional law are decided less by courts and more by events. You know, the, little, the world will little note nor long remember what academics say about the Constitution, and that's probably as it should be. Uh, most constitutional issues are resolved by presidents, not professors. They tend to also to be resolved by wars and not just words. And I think that the Constitution we have today is in substantial measure a reflection of what I think is the most important in constitutional interpretive event in our nation's history, and that is the Civil War. And at the end of this outline, which, which I hope you all have, I don't do PowerPoint, it's so contemporary. <clears throat> at the end of this outline, I list an article I wrote that, uh, entitled The Civil War as Constitutional Interpretation. And among the many things that the Civil War was, I think it really was an act, a violent act, of contentious constitutional interpretation. You think people fight over constitutional law today. The Civil War was a fight over constitutional interpretation, essentially, that cost 600,000 lives. <clears throat> it was a fight over the, probably the most important constitutional issues in our nation's antebellum history, that is, what is the nature of the union? What is the nature of sovereignty? Uh, is it a nation of states, or are states part of a unified nation? Fundamental issues that the Constitution had kind of straddled and that were left to very contentious issues of, of interpretation for, for the first 70, 80 years of our nation's history. The other big issue was, <clears throat> what is the constitutional status of slavery precisely, and what institutions in our government have the constitutional power to determine the status and future course of slavery? Uh, that <clears throat> set of issues, Lincoln's response to it, and the South's response to Lincoln's responses, is basically what framed the Civil War as a great issue of constitutional interpretation. Now, if the Civil War was in part about constitutional interpretation, President Abraham Lincoln was the commander-in-chief of that war over constitutional interpretation. And I 
submit that Lincoln, who was many things, is also the province of constitutional law professors because he was really the most important constitutional interpreter and expositor in our nation's history, beating out by, I think, a fair margin such distant rivals as Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, um, and John Marshall. The Constitution that we have today largely reflects Lincoln's views of the nature of sovereignty and union, and we all accept that because of the outcome of the Civil War. The most important case in our constitutional history is the case of Grant versus Lee, decided at the Appomattox Courthouse. <clears throat> now, you, you, you giggle. I, I, I included that as sort of a throwaway line in a footnote once to an article in the Michigan Law Review. And, you know, the law review editors, I don't know how this is in other disciplines, but the students edit the professors here, which, which is really sort of wonderful and terrible at the same time. <clears throat> the students uh, uh, wrote me back and said, what is this case, Grant versus Lee? <laughs> We haven't been able to find it in any of the legal research databases. Um, Lincoln, as you know, was a lawyer, and he had a very well-developed and highly disciplined approach to constitutional interpretation. If I were to put a label on him, and these are kind of modern labels, I'd call him a pragmatic textualist. He had a very rigorous idea that the words, structure, and historical meaning of the Constitution were binding and obligatory in all branches of government. And that is why Dred Scott was so horrible to him. He was basically as close to an originalist of today as you could be. Tempered with a highly pragmatic streak. Okay which I think actually puts him sort of one notch higher in terms of his sophistication as a constitutional interpreter. His pragmatic streak, and you'll see this in a couple of things I talk about today, is viewing the Constitution holistically, that he understood the first duty of the president as protector, defender of the Constitution being to preserve the constitutional order as an entirety. And he had certain principles of priority that like a commonsensical Illinois backwoodsman, put the more important things ahead of the less important things. And when there was a conflict, he thought that the soundest way of interpreting the Constitution's language was to give priority to that which the Constitution tended to indicate should have priority over all other. It's a powerful interpretive method, and it's not studied, at least not in uh, American law schools. Um, <clears throat> Well, this lecture is divided into to two parts. First thing is a historical part talking about the lawfulness of the Emancipation Proclamation. And I've chosen that from among the many issues of Lincolnian constitutional interpretation because it frames so neatly and interestingly some of the issues that are confronting our nation today. <clears throat> the Emancipation Proclamation, as, as, as I'm sure most of you know, uh, was issued in 1862 as a war measure and justified by Lincoln on grounds of military necessity in order to win the war, not, as it is so often portrayed in popular understanding today, as a great act of liberation. It had that effect, to be sure, in addition, 
But Lincoln's legal justification for it, if you read the Emancipation Proclamation carefully, was pursuant to his understanding of the commander-in-chief power brought into play in circumstances of actual war where taking this measure was necessary as a way of disabling, demoralizing the enemy and conscripting its resources for the Union's advantage. The Emancipation Proclamation itself is not Lincoln's greatest work of literature. It is a carefully constructed legal document that invokes Lincoln's claims of constitutional power, the sources of his authority, commander-in-chief power, and president of the United States. And then goes on to uh, decree that as of a few months hence, uh, <clears throat> the slaves in the areas where there were states that, whose governments were in rebellion against the United States would be thenceforth and forever free. Did not purport to free any slaves in the border states that remained in the Union that were still slave states. Now, many have uh, made the observation, which I think is far too glib, that Lincoln's actions were in some sense hypocritical in that he only freed slaves where they were not within the power of the Union, to, to the de facto power of the Union to free, and that he freed no slaves in, an area, in the areas which were under Union control where the, such an order might have had immediate effect. I think the, distinct, the, the accusation of hypocrisy, I think, is unfounded, and that the distinction rests in Lincoln's views of what is the appropriate scope of his constitutional power. He did not think that as president he could simply order slaves freed. In fact, he was long on record as saying that that was not within the constitutional power of the national government, at least not in times of peace. Lincoln's distinction between the states in rebellion and the slave states that had remained in the Union was based purely and solely on his view of the proper scope of the commander-in-chief power when called into existence by time of war. So <clears throat> some have criticized over the years the Emancipation Proclamation as actually not being constitutionally justified. It was basically an act of lawlessness that Lincoln uh, engaged in and that has been vindicated by history but still somehow illegal. I think that that, uh, that, that answer is, is, is deeply flawed. Um, and the argument for the lawfulness of the Emancipation Proclamation consists of these three propositions that I sketch out here. One concerning the scope of the commander-in-chief power as a general proposition. The second point will be the specific application of the commander-in-chief power to the idea of seizing enemy material and property. And then the third step is just the, the basic fact that the commander-in-chief power was properly brought into play by the circumstances of civil war. <clears throat> My thesis is that in time of constitutionally authorized war-making, the president's constitutional powers as commander-in-chief are brought fully into play, and that those powers are necessarily and properly formidable and fearful. Moreover, as with any other provision of the Constitution, the commander-in-chief clause, power of the president, must prevail as against any inconsistent legislative enactment that would violate that constitutional assignment of power. In other words, if it is a constitutional power of the president, Congress may no more infringe that power than it may infringe freedom of speech. That is the whole argument of judicial review, is that Congress may not pass statutes that violate some other constitutional provision. 
Now, that, of course, begs the question, what is the scope of the commander-in-chief power? Here is my proposition. I'll end up repeating this later. I'm going to read it so that I can sort of say it precisely. Uh, and I'll, so I'll, I'll do it a little bit ponderously. <clears throat> the president of the United States, by virtue of the commander-in-chief clause, possesses the full military and executive power of the nation with respect to the conduct of legally authorized war against an enemy power, nation, or force. The president determines matters of military strategy and tactics, specific and general military objectives, the rules of engagement with the enemy, the means and methods to be employed, how resources are to be employed, so long as the requisite resources have not been withheld by Congress, and whether, when, and under what conditions hostilities are to be terminated. Where the commander-in-chief power is brought into play, all matters of these descriptions fall within the scope of the president's constitutional powers. They require no further legislative authorization, and they may not be limited by legislative restrictions so long as the legal condition of war persists. Now, you'll see that in one of the ongoing debates about the, about the, the, the alloc Constitution's allocation of war powers is whether the president can initiate war on his own. Nothing I say here has anything really to do with that argument. I'm saying that where a war is constitutionally authorized, where the commander-in-chief power is triggered, this is what it consists of. Now, <clears throat> I come to this through a study of many uh, other scholars' works concerning the Article II nature of the executive power, and I detailed them in footnotes of a forthcoming article that has a title very much resembling this one. Um, but the shortest precise version comes from Alexander Hamilton, who characterizes a commander-in-chief power as the power of directing and employing the common force. The power of directing and employing the common force. That's a nice short summary. That is what I think the commander-in-chief power consists of. Okay. Now, <clears throat> on to my second point, the specific application as to the Emancipation Proclamation. And here my proposition is that the legitimate use of force against an enemy power in time of war traditionally has been understood and was understood at the time of Lincoln to include the power to seize and confiscate property within the area or areas under the territorial control of the enemy force or power, if and when it becomes militarily possible to do so, so as to deprive the enemy of those resources and to add those resources to one's own military and economic capabilities whenever the commander-in-chief deems such action useful and appropriate to furthering a successful war effort. I think this well-accepted understanding of war powers is properly understood to fall within the scope of the President's constitutional power as Commander-in-Chief. This was, in a nutshell, the legal rationale of Lincoln for freeing the slaves. He had resisted military emancipation when initially ordered by some of his commanders in the field. If this is to be done by some commander under my authority, I will be the one to do it. Thank you very much. Lincoln was a moderate anti-slavery person, was very careful to work on politically balancing the interests of various sections of the North and not lurching Kentucky, Maryland, uh, Missouri into the Confederate camp. So he was slow to move toward emancipation, but he became convinced by the summer of 1862 
that, in his words, we must free the slaves or be ourselves subdued. That the time had come to cease fighting with kid gloves, so to speak, and that was a phrase uh, they were using at the time, um, and to, to bring the war home to the Confederates, and that that involved taking their property, seizing it, and re, as a result, as that could be accomplished by Union armies, to transfer those resources, that materiel, that enemy property, into the ledger on the side of the Union, that it was a necessary and fit war measure. Now, the last step in the argument for the lawfulness of the Emancipation Proclamation is that there really was a war on. Now, that seems commonsensical uh, for those of us, you know, who sort of have sort of an understanding, you know, of what the Civil War was, was really all about. But what has led some people to question this and what led to questions at the time was that this was not a declared war in the sense of Congress having issued a declaration of war against foreign nation. Legally, it was the putting down of a domestic insurrection. This was Lincoln's legal theory of the Civil War. He held to it very rigorously. There was no Confederate States of America. He would refer to the so-called Confederate States, the so-called seceded states. In fact, if you look at Lincoln's proclamations, he refers to states in rebellion consistently. His legal theory was that union was inviolable, secession was unlawful, and therefore illegal, and that is what gave him the power as chief executive to put down the rebellion as a way of faithfully executing the laws of the union throughout the union. Well now, his critics said, if you are saying that the South never left the Union, by what authority do you confiscate citizens' property? And the answer is, and this reflects Lincoln's pragmatism, so the Civil War was both the putting down of, a, of domestic insurrection, but look what is involved. This is a real shooting war. Surely the commander-in-chief power to direct armed forces against an enemy force is called into play. The war is constitutionally authorized under a different legal theory than is traditional for declarations of war. Okay? The legal theory is the executive power to suppress rebellions. But let's be real here. There is a war on and the commander-in-chief power is in play. Rebels can be traitors and at the same time for purposes of application of the commander-in-chief power. They can also be enemies. And as to enemy resources in areas controlled by the enemy, the commander-in-chief power entails the power to seize and confiscate their property. So that basically was Lincoln's argument for the lawfulness of the Civil War. It's one that I find entirely persuasive. Lincoln doesn't stop there. Late in his, uh, well, it's in 1864. Late in his life, he doesn't know it's late in his life yet. Uh, <clears throat> he gives an explanation of his actions in the Emancipation Proclamation uh, to certain representatives from Kentucky, one of whom asks him to put it down in a letter. And this is the, at the bottom of my outline here, the Lincolnian or Lincoln-esque overlay of necessity and the duty of the president's oath. The letter is to Albert Hodges, and it's dated April 4th, 1864, for those of you inclined to look things up in Lincoln's letters and writings. <clears throat> 
He writes, my dear sir, you asked me to put in writing the substance of what I verbally said the other day in your presence to Governor Bramlett and Senator Dixon. It was about as follows. I am naturally anti-slavery. If slavery is not wrong, nothing is wrong. I cannot remember when I did not so think and feel. And yet I have never understood that the presidency conferred upon me an unrestricted right to act officially upon this judgment and feeling. It was in the oath I took that I would, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. I could not take the office without taking the oath, nor was it my view that I might take an oath to get power and break the oath in using the power. I understood, too, that in ordinary civil administration, this oath even forbade me to practically indulge my primary abstract judgment on the moral question of slavery. I did understand, however, that my oath to preserve the Constitution to the best of my ability imposed upon me the duty of preserving by every indispensable means that government, that nation of which the Constitution was the organic law. Was it possible to lose the nation and yet preserve the Constitution? By general law, life and limb must be protected, yet often a limb must be amputated to save a life. But a life is never wisely given to save a limb. I felt that measures otherwise unconstitutional might become lawful by becoming indispensable to the preservation of the Constitution through the preservation of the nation. Right or wrong, I assume this ground and now avow it. I could not feel that, to the best of my ability, I had even tried to preserve the Constitution if, to save slavery or any minor matter, I should permit the wreck of government, country, and Constitution altogether. He goes on at some length to justify it. But it's all there, the idea of oath, duty, and the necessity of circumstances leading him to a different constitutional view than would otherwise be his baseline rule in time of peace. The constitutional oath requirement obligated Lincoln, he thought, to defend the Constitution as he understood it. That understanding included the perpetuity of the Union, the unlawfulness of secession, the duty to execute the laws of the Union throughout the Union, the duty to pass on his office and the nation unimpaired to a successor, and the consequent duty to suppress the rebellion by military force if necessary. Lincoln viewed this duty as personal and non-abdicable. Is that a word, non-abdicable? He could not abdicate this, this duty. He could not resign it into the hands of the Supreme Court. And Lincoln increasingly considered himself not bound by Supreme Court decisions that he viewed as destructive of the Constitution, and he could not yield up that duty to force or the threats of force, as President Buchanan had before him. That duty for Lincoln also supplied a fundamental constitutional template for viewing everything else about the Constitution. It provided a lens for, through which he approached constitutional interpretation of other provisions. At the end of uh, this outline, I list another article that I've written called The Constitution of Necessity, which builds on Lincoln's notion to argue that if Lincoln is right, the Constitution entails certain vital interpretive principles along the lines of Lincoln 
that indicate that specific provisions of the Constitution should be interpreted wherever possible in the way that is tends least toward destruction of the nation or the constitutional order as a whole. In other words, where it's possible as between two interpretations of the Constitution uh, to read it in a way that is constitutional order saving rather than tending to destruction, that we should do so. The Constitution is not a suicide pact, and we should not lightly make it one by its construction. In addition, the second principle that Lincoln adhered to was that the Constitution always applies, but it does not always apply the same way in all of its provisions in time of war and in time of peace. That the fact and circumstance of war means that some specific constitutional provisions that are written as generalized standards find those standards applied differently in different circumstances. Again, a very pragmatic approach to constitutional interpretation. Finally, when push comes to shove, as it did on more than one occasion during the Civil War, Lincoln, I think, adopted a rule of constitutional priority. A life is never wisely given to save a limb. Where there is an irreconcilable conflict between a specific provision of the Constitution and preservation of the constitutional order, Lincoln chose the constitutional order all the time. Sometimes that might meant he misfired and went too far. But he thought that that was at least the interpretive paradigm, the framework through which he must approach these things. As between the choice of two impairments of the constitutional system, one of which would tend to destroy more of it and one of which would tend to destroy less of it, he says, always take the constitutional interpretation that does less damage. Famously, in justifying a suspension of the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus, he said, are all the laws but one to go unexecuted and the nation itself fall to pieces for the sake of that one? He viewed the duty to preserve the whole as prevailing over any specific part, even when it meant bending specific constitutional provisions. And he viewed this as correct as a matter of constitutional interpretation, as constitutional obligation. Now, I think the Emancipation Proclamation didn't really require him to go that far. It was a pretty easy case, just on straightforward commander-in-chief clause powers, traditional understandings of what that entailed and its application to these circumstances. But in principle, I find Lincoln's analysis of the Constitution's approach, the commander-in-chief power, the oath clause, the duty, ideas of necessity, rigorous, principled, and compelling. It's also proved enduring, and that brings me to the lessons for today. So that's the flip side of the outline. <clears throat> my proposition here, and here we move from uh, my Lincoln in the Constitution course to my War and National Security course, and I think here is where it will get more contentious, um, <clears throat> is that the same principles that made Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation entirely lawful, the commander-in-chief power war measure, by those same principles, nearly all of the most hotly contested actions of President Bush in the war on terror are also lawful. And the arguments I make, basically the same sort of proposition, is these same, sort of, these same three propositions. One, just what is the scope of the commander-in-chief power as a general matter? Two, how does it specifically apply? Here we're not talking emancipation. The, the controversial issues of the day are interrogation, detention, 
uh, asserted uh, coercive interrogation bordering on torture, and uh, the issue of the month, the flavor of this month, is uh, domestic surveillance, NSA uh, uh, interception of al-Qaeda communications or the communications of persons in the U.S. who have been in contact with al-Qaeda. So I'll come to specific applications. And then also, again, whether the commander-in-chief power is properly in play. Are we in a lawful war? Um, let me start very briefly with the scope of commander-in-chief clause. And here I'll just basically summarize and reiterate what I read before, that the President of the United States, by virtue of the commander-in-chief power, possesses the full military and executive power of the nation with respect to the conduct of a legally authorized war against an enemy power, nation, or force. This includes tactics, strategies, specific and general military objectives, the rules of engagement with the enemy, the means and methods and resources to be employed, and whether, when, and how hostilities are to be terminated. Where the commander-in-chief power is lawfully brought into play, all of these matters fall within the scope of the president's constitutional powers and require no further legislative authorization, nor may they be limited by legislatively imposed restrictions so long as the legal condition of war persists. See how I set that up so nicely? If you, okay. <clears throat> but if there's anything wrong with that definition, you know, I'm, I'm open to being persuaded that it's wrong. This is a general description of the commander-in-chief power, and it is the core fundamental premise that was necessary to justify the Emancipation Proclamation, a broad Lincolnian conception of the scope of the commander-in-chief power. Now, I'm going to skip from point one to point three for us very briefly to talk about whether the commander-in-chief power has been legally triggered now. In other words, the lawfulness of the war on terror. And here, you know, I think it has become commonplace in the culture not to think that we are at war. If you asked, you know, an opinion poll, had, did Congress ever declare war, or is this just the president acting on his own? I think many people would not recognize that Congress did declare war. The September 18, 2001, <clears throat> authorization for use of military force is, I think, in legal effect, a declaration of war. More than that, it is arguably the broadest declaration of war in our nation's history. It reads, and I'll paraphrase because I didn't bring up the exact language, but I think I almost have it memorized, that the president is authorized to use all necessary and appropriate force <clears throat> against those nations, organizations, or persons he determines planned, authorized, or aided the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, or harbored such nation, such persons or organizations in order to prevent and deter future acts of international terrorism by such nations, organizations, or persons. Now, let me just recap a little bit because, you know, I want to go slowly so you can focus on just how broad this is. President is authorized to use all necessary and appropriate force. This is a declaration of war. It's become out of style to say we declare war these days, but it is in legal effect the triggering of whatever power Congress has under the declare war clause to vest that power in the president to wage war. 
Who do we wage war against? Those persons, nations, organizations, or persons that the president determines planned, authorized, committed, or aided. Boy, lawyers are good with that language. I think I know the guy who drafted this, and it was negotiated for language. The attacks of September 11th or harbored such nations, organizations, or persons in order to prevent future attacks. And on top of that, there's a series of whereas clauses preceding the, the declaration of war itself, one of which says, <clears throat> whereas the president has constitutional power to take acts to deter and prevent international terrorism. Congress has endorsed a very broad conception of executive power. The short of it that I conclude from that is, you know, boy, we are at war. The commander-in-chief power, whatever it consists of, is fully brought into play by the present circumstances and legally so. What then of the specific applications? I'll just sketch them because it might provide the source of most of the questions and arguments in the Q&A afterwards. But first, as to capture, detention, interrogation, and military tribunal punishment, those sorts of issues, the treatment and uh, rights, if any, accorded to enemy combatants have always been understood to be within the power of the commander-in-chief in the waging of war. To be sure, they are cabined in some ways by legal restrictions imposed by treaty obligations, but the interpretation and application of treaty provisions is largely understood to be a presidential executive power also. The direction of the waging of war, including the waging of war and the treatment of captured enemy combatants in time of authorized war-making, is a core presidential power. Now, this was the issue, basically, of last year or the year before. The Geneva Conventions Memoranda of Department of Justice, the Torture Convention Memos. Congress has passed statutes making certain things a crime. Now, I cannot, it's, it's a whole separate lecture, talk about all the provisions of those memoranda. But one of the aspects that received a lot of controversy and contention was the assertion in these memoranda, which were leaked, it was not intended to be made public, that in the event that the congressional statutes could be construed in such a manner as to restrict conduct in which the president was actually engaging, that the president's commander-in-chief power meant that you could not apply the statutes. Well, Congress and the press went ballistic about that. What? The president has the power to defy an act of Congress? The short answer is Congress may not pass a statute that limits the president's constitutional powers. To whatever extent an act of Congress infringes on executive commander-in-chief power, it is to that extent unconstitutional. That's so apply. Now, I can't, I, I'm not able here to get into the specifics of how that would play out in a number of situations. But in principle, the argument that the commander-in-chief power makes this the president's turf and not Congress's seems to follow logically from the fact that we are at war and from a broad Lincolnian understanding of the scope of the commander-in-chief power. The issue of the day is interception of communications with persons in contact with al-Qaeda. I think this issue is, if anything, easier. Clearly, the interception of enemy communications during time of war 
is part of the waging and conduct of war falling within the commander-in-chief power. Given this declaration of war, in which it is possible for us to be at war with persons and organizations, including persons in the U.S., including persons lawfully in the U.S., including potentially citizens of the U.S. Recall that the September 11th attacks involved some people who were legally present in the United States and came from within the geographical territory of the United States, at least on the days that they were launched. Technically, we are at war with persons who are assisting al-Qaeda. If the president deems it appropriate to monitor communications with persons who are in contact with al-Qaeda to see whether they are in communication with the enemy and are furthering the enemy, that seems to me to fall within the core of the executive power to wage war in a time of authorized war. Now, Congress had passed a statute in 1978 concerning foreign intelligence surveillance and electronic surveillance. You've probably heard about that. Now, the common argument is how could you read this authorization for use of military force as repealing by implication this very specific congressional statute? I think that has the issue all wrong. Take that 918 authorization and you have a declaration of war. You then cannot read a congressional statute as applying to the waging of war in such a way as to limit the president's power to wage it in the way he deems most effective to subdue the enemy. Now, I think FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, need not be read that way. But I think the best reading is that it probably is a safe harbor in where Congress has said this much is at least permissible. A further issue that has been raised concerns the Fourth Amendment prohibition against unreasonable searches and seizures. But again, the amendment talks about searches and seizures being required to be reasonable, not that they always have to be uh, authorized by a judicial warrant. And here, I think the circumstances of war make the interception of enemy communications or communications from persons who are in contact with the enemy reasonable. I had to take off a good amount of my clothes and empty my pockets at the airport this morning. There was no warrant. There was no reason to believe. Am I that suspicious looking in particular? Rather, it is deemed reasonable under the circumstances because of the security needs. I think by that same reasoning, it is very hard to find that the Fourth Amendment prohibits uh, the conduct at issue here. Now, I think I'll <clears throat> essentially end there without talking a lot about whether there might be further implications by one who would employ a Lincoln-esque notion of necessity. If you add the idea of necessity as providing an interpretive lens, does that provide yet further support for President Bush's actions? <clears throat> it may well indeed, and, and my ultimate conclusion is that if the President of the United States this president or a successor or Lincoln before him failed to take all measures necessary to protect the nation against a cataclysm to the nation, threatening the constitutional order or threatening grave damage to the nation or the deaths of millions of lives. If a president declined to do so, 
out of a sensitivity to civil liberties concerns, an understandable sensitivity. And a cataclysmic attack then came. We should not think him to be a principled and sensitive defender of the Constitution. We should think him to be a fool. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Paulson, for an excellent presentation. Uh, even if it weren't an excellent presentation, I think uh, it's a truth uh, universally acknowledged that uh, provided one uh, throws in at least one uh, extensive quote from Abraham Lincoln and, and preferably one or more aphorisms from Lincoln, one, uh, it's, it's exceedingly difficult for the speech to be declared an abject failure. <laughs> and uh, so I think you're safe. Uh, you've uh, actually delighted and, and charmed and informed uh, and provoked us today. Uh, and uh, the question period, I think, will tell us uh, the extent to which you've persuaded. And uh, so we'll go to the question period. We have a habit in the Madison program of uh, offering the uh, first uh, question or questions to students here at Princeton or from other universities. Uh, is there a student who has a question? Yes, ma'am. Should I repeat the question as you can? Okay. Uh, given that the war on terror has no determinate end, you know, that it is open-ended, you know, that's part of what is troubling the questioner. You know, um, what does that imply and are there any effective checks left? Okay. I think it's an excellent and perceptive question. Um, <clears throat> another feature of the authorization for use of military force, it has no time deadline. Okay, it could go on potentially forever for as long as the president in good faith determines that there are targets that fit within the description. Okay, persons, nations, or organizations engaged in assistance of those who planned, authorized, or committed the attacks. I think as long as you have al-Qaeda or other uh, Islamist extremist groups in loose affiliations with them, that the war on terror could go forever. Okay. Um, so could World War II have. We didn't know how long it would last. Okay, you know, the Thirty Years' War, I'm told, lasted thirty years. The Hundred Years' War. Okay, <clears throat> how long will this war go? Uh, uh, when I when I began teaching my civil procedure class on September 12, 2001, I hadn't cried yet. But the realization that this war probably would go on the rest of my lifetime, and my children, who had been born in times of peace might well live their whole lives in a nation at war. Grieves me. It may be something we have to live with. Congress is not without checks. I think the core check 
on the authorization for use of force. A declaration of war is Congress withholding the resources to continue it. Congress's ultimate shootout power is the appropriations power. And uh, the way the Vietnam War ended, or some would say was lost, was that Congress both repealed the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, which was something of a blank check authorization, um, and probably more importantly, passed, I think it was called the Mansfield Amendment, which conditioned appropriations uh, for war on a date certain end. Okay, this will be the policy, funding only for these purposes, and at the end of this, nothing. And when the funds ran out, the war ended, Saigon fell, and America left. It was widely regarded in America at the time as a war we should not have been in. Once that view successfully took hold by the 1970s, the early 1970s, Congress did have the means to stop it and did it through appropriations. So there is a check. Excellent question. The question is, does authorization for force always require congressional action or does situation of self-defense sometimes provide justification? Um, I will state my own view, which is the correct one. <laughs> um, <clears throat> well, and, and let me pair it against, uh, con contrast the views so you have the, the full menu. Um, it, it's interesting. Uh, there's basically a congressionalist school that says Congress must authorize and a presidentialist school that says the president's commander-in-chief power gives him the authority to initiate military hostilities. Uh, the congressionalist view has a much stronger basis in the original history and the original meaning of the language of the Constitution. And the presidentialist view is, has a much stronger support in practice over the last 50 years. Okay. And it's interesting, the liberals tend to be anti-war and cling very tenaciously to the original intent. When do liberals cling to original intent? And conservatives, who otherwise you know, want to adhere to the Procrustean 200-year-old constitution, what the framers said controls, tend to be presidentialist and unilateralist. And so the conservatives tend to support the living constitution that has evolved over time. Now, I'm more of a conservative in terms of constitutional methodology, and it's sort of interesting to me that both sides change their stripes on this issue. I'm the only principled constitutional interpreter in the nation. <clears throat> I don't change my stripes. I think that Congress has the power to declare war, and the president does not. Okay? There is room for exception, and this is indicated by the framers' discussions at the Constitutional Convention, when they changed the early draft from Congress shall have the power to make war to Congress shall have the power to declare war. And the explanation that was given by James Madison, of course, was that it would leave to the executive the power to repel sudden attacks. Okay. <clears throat> and in the prize cases, the 1863 decision of the Supreme Court concerning the lawfulness of some of Lincoln's war measures the Supreme Court basically upheld the legality of the Civil War and in the course of doing so gave a broad conception of the commander-in-chief power as including the power to respond to serious attacks upon the nation. 
the president was bound to meet force by force and not wait for Congress to baptize it with a name. Okay? I think the most interesting issues of the scope of congressional versus presidential war power concern areas where you know, how far can you push the line of responding to sudden attacks, the Madisonian no notion. Okay? So in 1787, they're thinking sudden attacks is like, you know, somebody has started shooting us at the border or the ships from Britain or France are landing on our shores. Okay? How does that play out today? Okay? You know, and the, the, the position of the Bush administration lawyers is that the president has the power under commander-in-chief clause to wage war unilaterally. Okay? If you don't have that view, but you have a repel attacks exception to Congress's power. You have to wonder about does the power to repel attacks extend so far as to be able to preemptively wage war against a nation you reasonably believe, based on the best intelligence you have, Is reaching for its guns, and those guns might be nuclear, or those, you know, those weapons might be bacteriological, and they might be given to allies who would use them in domestic attacks. Okay, the stakes would become more serious. And I think, you know, there's legitimate room to argue about when one power ends and another begins. But there is room for presidential unilateralism, um, <clears throat> I think. Okay, we'll open it up then. Do you want to call on people? Um, so, so I'm not. Well, sure. You point. I will, in the center, in the back. Yes. Yes. Well, I'm an admirer of George Will's columns, but he's not a very good constitutional lawyer. Um, the Youngstown case involves an entirely different situation. Um, <clears throat> for those of you not familiar with it, even though it's gotten lots of play in the media, every, you know, all these senators pre pretending to have read the Youngstown Sheet and Tube case when they're interrogating Sam Alito. Um, <clears throat> This was President Truman's seizure of the domestic U.S. steel industry in order to avert a strike during the time of the Korean War. Okay? The Supreme Court struck it down on the ground that conscripting domestic resources, just like you know, the president ordering a draft or the president seizing everybody's property, was not part of the commander-in-chief power. The commander-in-chief power is to wage war, to conduct the war with the resources that are provided you. Okay? So I would say that seizing domestic industries does not fall within this description of the commander-in-chief power, at least as I have given it. And I, I don't think it would fall within power. That would be the equivalent of Lincoln saying, I need more forces, therefore I'm freeing the northern slaves. That's, that's, like a steel, that's like a seizure of a steel mill. I'm seizing domestic property. Okay? He couldn't do that. I can only seize enemy steel mills. And when we capture those steel mills, we're going to turn them into our production capacities. Okay? 
And I think the Supreme Court like, rightly slapped down uh, President Truman on, that, uh, on the simple ground that it doesn't fall within commander-in-chief power. I think there's a much stronger case that things like interception of enemy communications, uh, interrogation of enemy prisoners, rules of capture and detention do fall within the uh, normal province of, uh, uh, of uh, the commander-in-chief power. Part of Youngstown cheating, too, and part of what was motivating it, too, <clears throat> were, were two things. Uh, the Supreme Court's decision. One is that Congress had passed a statute authorizing the president, uh, the Taft-Hartley Act, to, uh, you know, uh, to avert a strike that is dangerous to the national interest. The president can order a, what is it, 60-90 day cooling off period. Basically, you know, they gave him that authority. The legislation, when they're contemplating this, they specifically considered a proposal to authorize the president to seize the domestic industry to avert a strike in those situations, and they voted it down. Truman could have stopped the strike, at least temporarily, for more time to negotiate. Uh, there was an election campaign. His party was pro-union. He didn't want to alienate the unions, and uh, ordering a, an end to the strike would have been anti-union at the time. The other thing that undoubtedly influenced the Supreme Court was, and, and this goes to the, the prior gentleman's question. <clears throat> the, the Korean War is one of two examples I think I can point to <clears throat> where under my understanding of the allocation of the power to initiate war, uh, the war is, was unconstitutional. Now, please, I do not by this mean in any way to disparage it, okay, or to impugn the integrity of people who've served under it. I'm not even saying it was bad as a matter of policy. I'm just saying legally it is hard to justify as fitting within the constitutional framework. It's kind of the origin of this notion that the president can just initiate war on his own. Korean War is clearly a war. Congress never authorized it. Truman committed troops on his own. It was prior to the UN involvement. And UN authorization is no substitute for constitutional authorization. The Kore and you see this reflected in several of the opinions that the Korean War itself was not a legally authorized war. They say, well then, the president can start a war and order confiscation of domestic resources to wage it on his own? No, thank you. We're not going there. So, so George F. Will is wrong. <laughs> In the very back row, yes, sir. I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't hear that word. The question is, what is the adequacy of the justification and sort of compare Lincoln and Bush in those regards. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure I have a, I'm not sure I have a good answer to that. But let, let me let me try and surround that question with just a couple of points. It might get me 70 or 80 percent of the way there. Um, Lincoln's theory of necessity is a dangerous theory. 
okay, you know, depending on how far you unleash it. Now, Lincoln, you know, had certain disciplining and cabining functions, uh, 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 approaches to this, including that it had to be for an indispensable necessity for preservation of the Union. Um, and nothing that he asserted would displace the roles or positions of checking branches of government. In the 1930s, Carl Schmitt, uh, sort of a early Nazi-era theorist of emergency executive power under the Weimar Constitution. I'm, I'm not an expert in this. Uh, he he kind of liked Lincoln. Okay. And the argument was made under the Weimar Constitution, which I believe had an emergency clause, an emergency provision. And that was part of you know, the rationale, the legal rationale for Hitler seizing power. Now, I'm engaged, in fact, uh, some of the remarks I made here are part of an article I'm writing responding to my good friend, uh, Professor Sandy Levinson, who's a law professor at University of Texas, who gave an endowed lecture at Georgia on, uh, <clears throat> on this topic of emergency powers in a, state, in a condition of perpetual emergency. And he compared uh, the present administration, George W. Bush administration, to in their legal rationale to, to Hitler and to Carl Schmitt. And he disparagingly referred to Schmittian notions of inherent executive power, citing me in my article as, as one, of the, one of the bad guys. Now, <clears throat> uh, so, so in part I'm, I'm responding to that and, and, and attempting to explain the differences between it. I think you do have many people today who would say, I, 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 my reaction is that it's a little over the top to say that George W. Bush, you may disagree with many of his policies, but to say he's a you know, crypto-Nazi fascist like Hitler, you know, I think is pushing it too far. And I think the analogy that is closer is the Lincoln one. Now, now that stacks the deck a little bit now because people like, we all revere Lincoln. We just celebrated Lincoln's birthday. We have a President's Day weekend with Monday off and everything now. <coughs> but <coughs> and rhetorically, you know that that maybe that could be seen as a measure as unfair to compare Bush to Lincoln as it would be on the other side to compare Bush to Hitler. But I think it's interesting to look back and you know, if, if if you have a historical bent to see how much Lincoln was vilified as King Lincoln seizing quasi-dictatorial powers running roughshod over civil liberties at the time. Uh, Lincoln did, and Lincoln's generals did often run roughshod over civil liberties. Um, and I, I think the, the thing that perhaps links all of these eras, Lincoln, Hitler, George W. Bush, is that theories of broad executive war-making power uh, can be used for good or for ill. You know, they, are, they are enabling powers, and anytime you have power, power is intrinsically dangerous. Whether Bush turns out to be the next Lincoln or the next Hitler, we will have to leave for history. Okay, comment on 
habeas corpus and how I'm like, oh, gosh, can I have another 45 minutes? I, um, <clears throat> I love to, you know, my favorite case to teach in constitutional law, and none of the con law books have it except the, the one that I'm working on, is, is a case called Ex Parte Merriman. Okay, and I'll just briefly tell you the story. Okay, uh, it's uh, April 1861. Sumter has just fallen. Lincoln calls for troops. Troops are starting to pour in, well, dribble in from the north, and the upper south now secedes. Virginia has seceded. Maryland is on the verge of seceding, and you can't get the troops through Maryland because they're being shot at, stoned. You have to disembark from one train, travel a mile through town, get on board another train to get troops, and there's a very serious danger that the capital is encircled and will fall, and the Union will be lost uh, within a matter of weeks. Lincoln secretly authorizes his commanding general to suspend the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus, basically suspending the right of access to legal process. Um, Commander General Scott does so. Uh, Several weeks later, one Lieutenant Merriman is rousted out of bed. He's a member of a secessionist sympathizing uh, cavalry unit in, in Maryland, and he's imprisoned in Fort McHenry, which is where the uh, where the Star-Spangled Banner was written. Okay. Now, it turns out that Lieutenant Merriman's dad went to college with Chief Justice Taney. Okay? And somehow or another, you know, Merriman gets a lawyer and files a petition for writ of habeas corpus with the Chief Justice of the United States, who then t- treats it as a, you know, a circuit judge, rides out, I think, to Baltimore and holds a hearing, issues the writ saying, bring the body to me so I can adjudicate the lawfulness of his detention, habeas corpus. Okay. You know, an ancient, ancient case that all of a sudden, you know, th- this is what, what the Supreme Court's decisions in 2004 had everything to do with, and they're all citing ex parte Merriman. Okay. Uh, the commanding general shows up with a little notice and says, I'm sorry, Your Honor, but the president has suspended the writ of habeas corpus. And Tani says, what? He can't do that. And I told you to bring the body, therefore I'm holding the general in contempt and I'm ordering the posse to go to the fort and arrest the general, and I'm declaring the president's action unconstitutional and ordering it published in the newspapers. High constitutional drama. Uh, Lincoln responds deftly by saying as little as possible, for as long as possible. Um, <clears throat> he, uh, he, he finally responds to Tawney, in a July 4th message to Congress. About two, three months later, all the while, that they're just sort of defying the judicial order to release a prisoner who assertedly is being held unlawfully. Um, and it's in that context that he gives the, are all the laws but one, to go on executed line. It's sort of his first invocation of the law of necessity. It says, you know, uh, would we permit destruction of the Union altogether out of tenderness for observance of the one law under these circumstances. And he talks about necessity, but then he goes on to say, but it was not believed that any law was violated. And he, you know, there's a provision of the Constitution which says the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended except when in cases of public safe, uh, war, invasion, or insurrection, the... Yes, wait, well, let's get it right here. Isn't that a slick move? Pull out the Constitution. Article 1, Section 9, Clause 2. 
The privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended unless when in cases of rebellion or invasion the public safety may require it. Lincoln said, ours is a case of rebellion and the public safety certainly required it. I deemed it so. Now it's said by Chief Justice Taney that this is a congressional power and there might be some good arguments on that behalf. And I actually think Taney's argument is a little bit better that it's a congressional power than a presidential power to suspend the writ because the nature of the writ historically was a check on arbitrary executive power. Okay, the great writ of habeas corpus was dictated to the king from parliament as part of the checks on arbitrary executive power, and that certainly must be presumed to carry forward. But Lincoln has a very practical objection to that. He said, Congress was out of session. What? I can't act till they're in session? What if the purpose of the insurrection is to prevent the assembling that would give the authority to do it? He says, so, okay, you're here now. Okay, now Congress takes about, what, 16 months to finally explicitly authorize further suspensions of the writ of habeas corpus. But I think there are a couple things that are interesting about this. Lincoln uses the necessity argument as an overlay for understanding an arguably ambiguous constitutional provision in a time of emergency. The other thing that's interesting is in time of crisis, he defied a judicial order. You know, there's no discussion of the Supreme Court being the supreme interpreter or the chief justice. And Lincoln consistently, throughout his presidency, is a strong defender of independent executive power to interpret the Constitution, not necessarily bound by what the courts have done. And sure, by the time in the middle of the Civil War, the Emancipation Proclamation surely is a violation of the law of Dred Scott. In addition, Congress prohibits slavery in the territories. Well, the Supreme Court had said that that was unconstitutional in Dred Scott. So both in those instances and in the suspension of the writ, you see a further issue, which is its whole own lecture, about whether the president lawfully may refuse to honor Supreme Court judgments that he in good faith concludes are contrary to the Constitution itself and destructive of the interests of the nation. But, so, see, I could go on for 45 minutes. I, I won't. A couple more? Yes, sir, a couple more. I learned recently that uh, there is an appeal process under the Bison Act. Yes. That there is a appellate uh, court, which they call a court of review, and that in September of 
Okay, I'm going to try to re paraphrase the question very briefly. The gentleman has quoted language from an opinion of what is called the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court of Review. Hey, can I use chalk? Okay. FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, sets up this secret court of judges that meets in a windowless room in the fifth floor of the Department of Justice to review applications for foreign intelligence surveillance authorizations. Okay, that's the scheme set up by FISA. That court that reviews the applications is called the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. Or the FISC. Okay? <clears throat> There's a procedure whereby the government only can appeal a denial by the FISC of an authorization. And that's, you appeal to the... Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court of Review, the Fisker, okay, which has published one and only one opinion in its like 20-some year existence, and that's this 2002 opinion, okay, overturning, uh, uh, overturning a general decision of the Fisk. It actually wasn't a denial of a of, of a surveillance order. It just was an imposition of the uh, of limitations, and the limitations were this: what is sometimes been referred to as the wall, that the left hand can't know what the right hand is doing, that the prosecutors can't share information with the intelligence gatherers as if it's not the same enterprise. Okay. In the course of overturning that, the Fisker, quote, in fact, referencing a Supreme Court decision from the early 1970s, basically says that we, you know, the, the, the quoted language is, we presume that FISA cannot limit the president's inherent foreign policy constitutional power. Okay. Don't even need to get to war. Say so the foreign intelligence, the, the foreign affairs constitutional power includes the power of the president to order without warrants uh, foreign uh, surveillance of persons who are believed to be agents of a foreign power. So, so there are there are reasons why the, the, the courts it's themselves have never taken the view that this action of the president would be unconstitutional. The most that could be said is that it falls outside of FISA's uh, authorization. But oh boy, you know, after an hour and a half, that that must have sounded really technical. Are the eyes glazing over from from that one? Maybe maybe we can take one last question, then then we'll let people be free to leave. Okay, the question is, does the authorization for use of military force, the broad language, is, uh, does it, was it negotiated for or does it represent the administration's view? Um, my understanding is that the administration proposed a yet broader, a, a yet blanker check, okay, and that this was the result that was eventually negotiated for. Um, I'm not sure what the initial version said. I think it actually is publicly available because there was a draft bill introduced. And, you know, it's actually interesting. You know, after Pearl Harbor, they declare war the next day. This one, Congress takes two, three days of negotiating before they could finally agree to language. Still, the language is quite broad. The administration got 
probably 98% of what it was asking for, and it got, got it on a <coughs> unanimous vote in the Senate, 98 to nothing, and I think a vote in the House of something like 434 to 1. So, <coughs> you know, Congress certainly has fully authorized this, and nearly unanimously so, and it was bargained for language to some extent, but it was bargained for under the shadow of burning buildings, still smoldering burnings just across the river. You can see the smoke from Capitol Hill of the Pentagon still burning. Please uh, join me in thanking Professor Paulson. And if, uh, if you have time, please join us for a reception uh, in the hall right outside the room. Uh, Professor Paulson will uh, be able to answer a few more questions there. Thank you.